You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, we're starting the book of 1 Corinthians today. We're going to cover the first nine verses, and I'm just going to jump right into it. If you have your outline this morning, you can pull that out and take some notes as we uh, follow along. Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter to the church of God in Corinth, And Corinth was and is a city that was strategically located on an isthmus or a narrow strip of land between two bodies of water. On the eastern side was the Agency, or the Agency, I'm sorry, and on the western side was the Ionian Sea. And many ships would put in on the eastern side from the Agency, and they would uh, uh, put in there in Corinth, and they would unload their cargo and send it across the narrow strip of land by wagon, and then they would actually take the, sh- the ship and they would load it on rollers and roll it across to the other side, where the ship was reloaded and went on its way. So being a seaport city, as Corinth was, as well as being a Roman capital, and as uh, being a, a, the, the, the Roman capital city in the province of Achaia, it was a bustling place. It was a busy city. There was a lot of commerce happening. A lot of business transactions were taking place. And it was known for that business, that commerce. And it was also known for its loose living. On the Acropolis, which is the high point there in Corinth, uh, there was once a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. The, God, the Greek goddess of love. She was served on a daily basis by over 1,000 temple prostitutes, which would descend into the city every night, giving you an insight into the deviant sexual activity that was a normal part of the city's nightlife. Down in the city of Corinth was the Jewish synagogue, where the Jews would gather weekly for worship. You see, it was a very multicultural place, very multicultural city. Uh, it attracted Romans from Italy, as well as many other people groups from all across the Mediterranean. If you would turn back to Acts chapter 11, or Acts chapter 18 for just a moment. Acts chapter 18, that's two books backwards in your Bibles. But I want to read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, to get a little bit of the context of how this whole church started. Acts chapter 18, the book of Acts, if you know, is the, the history book of the book of, uh, or of the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 18, we find the history account of how the church in Corinth was planted. And it says this, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Achilla, son or born of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
In verse 7 there, he says, He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul starts a new church right next to the guys that kicked him out. They were upset with him. I love it. It's pretty bold. Verse 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. We'll stop there, and you can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So there, now you have the story of how Corinthian, or the, the Corinthian church was planted there. Just a simple uh, move by Paul. There as he comes into that city, finds some fellow tent makers, goes to the synagogue and preaches the gospel, and then when they kick him out, he moves next door and continues to share the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And all because of his persistence, in the face of persecution, in the face of satanic oppression, a church is born. And not just any church, a thriving, just a a, a live church in the middle of this dark city. Well, fast forward a few years. Paul is now on his third missionary journey. And in in the town of Ephesus, news travels to him from the family of Chloe, the household of Chloe. And, and he also gets a letter from them in the meantime. And so Paul's heart is burdened for this church because he begins to hear about some of the problems that are going on. And that's why he writes this letter. The purpose of Paul's letter was really mainly to deal with about four issues, four main things. There are several other things. But mainly he was dealing with, first of all, the unity of the church. He wanted to deal with the unity of the church there in Corinth. You see, they were, they were in danger of splintering into different factions that were arguing over doctrine and petty mat, other petty matters, spiritual gifts and things like that, and knowledge. So he's writing for the unity of the church. Secondly, he's writing about the purity of the church. He's concerned about the purity of the church, as there was quite a bit of sexual immorality in the city of Corinth, and that was creeping into, infiltrating into the church there as well. Sexual immorality, they were adopting basically some of the practices of the world around them. And we'll talk about that when we get to those. Thirdly, he was also writing because there was an abuse of spiritual gifts and of knowledge. Uh, several of them were puffed up because of their knowledge and they were abusing that. And then fourthly, they had questions about the resurrection. They had some questions about, hey, what's going to happen to us when Jesus Christ appears to take up the church? And so Paul writes them answering these questions. Paul's main goal, though, in this letter is to keep these Corinthian, this Corinthian church from breaking up into a bunch of different factions that were fighting with each other about moral and doctrinal matters, as I said before. That's the main issue behind this letter. But he uses this letter to fight for the centrality of Jesus Christ within the Christian church. He's, he's making the point, look, the church is all centered on Jesus. That is what brings us together. So let's begin this letter this morning by reading the first three verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Read with me. I, Paul, or Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, 
with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the introduction there of the letter to to the church in Corinth. And Paul starts it off by reminding the church of who they are and what they have been given. And that's important. Paul, in all of his letters, if you read the Pauline epistles, you'll see a pattern. He always reminds the church of who they are. And that is so important for you and me as a Christian. We need to be reminded of who we are because of what God did. Look there in verse 1 with me. Paul and Sosthenes are the the writers of this letter, Paul being the mastermind behind the letter, the one that is divinely inspired by the Spirit to write this letter. Sosthenes is acting as kind of like a scribe for Paul, helping him dictate the letter. But Paul follows the usual protocol for writing this letter in his day and age. He starts off by telling them who the letter's from, followed by who it's to, and then he offers a prayer. That's what verses 4 through 9 are, are a prayer. And, and many letters from his age, from that time, they all started this way. They, they offered some sort of a prayer at the beginning of that letter. Now, I find it fascinating here in verse 1 that Paul the Apostle understood that his life was under a calling. I really appreciate that about the Apostle Paul. He didn't do what he did just because he thought he could make some money off of it. He didn't do what he did because he was trying to fleece the flock of God and become a rich apostle with an inner circle that if you plop 20 grand down on the table, you could be a part of that inner circle. That was not Paul's heart or his motive. He was under a calling. He was a man who was called by God to do what he was doing. And that calling in his life, you guys, is vital. It is vitally important because that is what kept Paul from quitting. That's what kept Paul from quitting when the going got tough. And you know, this morning, Paul, or, Paul is going to point out that God has a calling on your life too. God has a calling on your life. And that, that, that's what we're going to get to here in verse 2. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. If you notice with me, Paul is really reminding the church of their calling. He's an he's a apostle called by God to do what he's doing, but the church is also called by God. Notice what he says about the church there in verse 2. He calls them the church of God. That word church in the Greek language is ecclesia. Ecclesia. And that just basically means the assembly. Church means assembly. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the Ecclesia of God. They were the assembly of God placed there on planet earth by God himself with the purpose of being the light. Drawing the people to God. Teaching people about God and about the truth of God. Well, in the New Testament, you and I... And all who call on the name of Jesus Christ are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and we become part of the assembly of God. The ecclesia of God is not a particular name. It is not a particular style. It's not a particular denomination. The ecclesia of God is all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
as Paul says here. And so the, the, the church is not a building, it is not a place, it is not a denomination. The church is universal. It is worldwide. It is made up of men and women who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, that is an important thing. This assembly is outwardly marked by two things that Jesus set up. They're the ordinances of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, we're celebrating both of those things today. And so in one day, you guys get the opportunity to participate in both of the outward signs that Jesus gave to the church and said, hey, practice these things. Because this is what, the outward, uh, what outwardly marks you as my bride. And so it's a special day today. A special day that we not only get to uh, uh, celebrate baptism right after the service here, but at the end of this message, we also get to partake together in the Lord's Supper. And, and what an exciting thing it is. I just want to say really quickly, you know, out of the, the, the folks that are being baptized today, you're going to notice that the majority of them are children. And, and it's such a cool thing because uh, they're getting saved in children's ministry and in your homes. And then they're realizing that following Christ, one of those steps of obedience is we, we get baptized And they're stepping out and they're doing that. And it is a beautiful, awesome thing. And we're celebrating that today. So I'm so excited about that. This outward assembly marked, that uh, that, that outward sign being baptism is marking an inward change in their hearts and in their lives. Now, he also says to the church in Corinth, they're, they're the church of God, the ecclesia of God, but they're also sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified simply means that they are set apart from the world. In the moment that they believed the gospel, they have been set apart by God for His purposes in the world. And and that's something that we need to note, we need to mark. Okay, The church, the ecclesia of God, the assembly of God, we have been marked, we've been sanctified. Sanctified means set apart in Christ. We've been set apart in Christ for the things of God. And and so there needs to be that difference in our mindset as we come to worship, as we realize, okay, we're part of this assembly. We're a part of this bride of Jesus Christ, and we're coming because we're defining that our purpose is not what it used to be. You know, whereas that purpose before may have been living for self, uh, doing whatever you thought was right, Uh, Getting what you felt was rightfully yours and all of those things that come along with it, the self-life. Hey, God says now you've been set apart from that and it's to be different. Your your life is going to be different now because you're set apart in Christ Jesus for God's purposes and for God's work in your life. It's an exciting thing. And then he also calls them saints. He says that they are called to be saints. Now, in your New King James Version, those two words, to be, are italicized. And the reason that is, is because uh, it's not there in the Greek. Those two words, they don't, they're not specifically there in the Greek language. And so we could read that as just uh, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. And I like that. I like that because that word saints, it literally means holy one. Saints means holy one. And so you are called a holy one by the word of God. And what's ironic about this is that Paul is writing to one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament. 
He's writing a letter to a group of people that if, if there's ever a church that was blowing it, it's this one, guys. And yet, he, he doesn't call them a bunch of losers. He doesn't call them sexually immoral losers or he doesn't call them out on their sins. He calls them by what he sees them as. He calls them by what God sees them as. And in Christ, God looks at the church and he says, these are my holy ones. They're called saints. So, you know, you don't have, you know, you don't have to be canonized in order to, to become a saint. You know, there's no process for that except for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're going, I'm not a saint. You know, in fact, your wife's laughing right now. <laughs> he said you're a saint, you know, you know, whatever it might be. I don't know. But we don't feel like saints, do we? If we're honest, man, we look at our lives and we go, man, I'm not a holy one. There's no way that I'm a holy one. But yet Paul here in this letter to this, this church that was being influenced and infiltrated by the world, he says, no, you're God's holy ones. You're sanctified. You're the church of God, sanctified, set apart in Christ, and you're holy. You're called holy by the Holy Spirit, and that's encouraging to me. Now, the fact that Paul uses that word is very important. I already said it speaks to us on two levels. One, it encourages us. I talked about that. But the other, now it also challenges us. It challenges us. It's encouraging because it shows us how God sees us. Oh, you know, God sees me as a saint. I'm a holy one. That's encouraging. But secondly, it's challenging because it shows us our calling. This is also a calling. You see, we as, as Christians, we're living in this world and we're living in this tension between who we really are on a daily basis and what God is calling us to be. And, and so we're gonna, we, we have this friction, we have this tension. But listen, this is the challenge. We are called, church, to dedicate our lives to God. No matter what your vocation is, no matter what your work title is, you have a calling, and that calling is to holy living. So you can be whatever. You fill in your vocation, whatever it is that you are doing, but you have a calling in that vocation. Just as the church of Corinth had a calling in the midst of that dark city, they weren't called to just hang out between the, the, the four walls of the church there. In, in the houses where they met, they were called the holy living amongst the people that they lived in. And that's how you are to see your calling. That's how you and I are to see our calling. It's a challenge. It's encouraging because it reminds us that because of God's grace, He sees us in Christ. We are His holy ones. We're His. But it's also a challenge because we're called to live up to that, uh, that, that, that position in Christ that we've been given. Thirdly, he says that the church of God there in Corinth is made up of those calling on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul makes it very clear that the central focal point of the assembly of God, the ecclesia of God, is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the focal point. We don't come for ourselves. We don't come for others. We come because Jesus Christ is Lord. And he is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be obeyed. He is worthy because he's our Lord. So it was Jesus himself who told his disciples that his church would be built on one foundation and one alone. And that was himself. The church is built on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And nothing can stand against it. 
I love how they're in Acts chapter 18. Did you catch that? The, the Lord appeared to Paul in a dream and he said, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot that's going to come against you in this city, Paul. But don't be afraid. Keep speaking my word. Keep speaking my words because I have many people in this city. The Lord sees things. You know, his church is unstoppable. His church is unstoppable. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel message. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, When I think of the assembly there of those that are are called to come together, uh, that verse says, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So, So what is this church that calls on the name of Jesus Christ? Hey, it's a group of people that come together and we're fleeing one thing and we're pursuing something else. We're fleeing youthful lusts. We're fleeing what the world puts in front of us as a cheap imitation of something that can satisfy and fulfill. We're fleeing that. And we're running to the only thing that is the fountain of living water, and that's Jesus Christ himself. We're pursuing that with others who also call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Also, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Uh, This is an exhortation from the writer of Hebrews. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up Love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, it's kind of popular these days, it's kind of in vogue to say, well, you know, I have church at home, or I go to my own church. You know, when I was a surfer in uh, Costa Rica and in California, I'd meet guys all the time, they're like, this is my church, man. You know, we're out, we'd be sitting out in the waves, you know, in the ocean. And they're like, this is my sanctuary, you know. And I don't go to church because I'd rather come out here and be with God, you know. And that was the, sort of their thing. You know, you talk to other guys here. I've talked to uh, at least one or two guys that, you know, their, their sanctuary is out on the, the deer stand, you know. And, and they're living for the, the deer hunting season. I've got nothing against that at all. I, I, you know, I've, I've killed a couple of Bambies in my lifetime, so I'll just come out and say it right now. But don't hate me for that. I, I ate them too, so I don't worry about that. But, but all that being said, you know, there, there are guys that like to say, well, you know, my sanctuary, my church is this, or this is where I'm going to meet with God, you know, and they've got that prideful sort of an attitude. Listen, guys, that's not what the Bible teaches us to do. The Bible says that we're not to forsake the assembling together of one another. There's something that happens in this place. As much as you might not like my teaching, like Pastor Drew was talking about, as much as you might not like to be here during this part of the service, listen, there's still something that God wants to do in the middle of it. The Holy Spirit desires to speak to our hearts. He desires to unify our hearts. He desires that we would uh, uh, experience this coming together, this exhorting of one another, so that we could stir each other up to love and good works. We come to verse 3, where we see the grace and the peace. Grace and peace to you from our Father, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two words there, and I'm going to just wrap it up here. Uh, had, had some more verses this morning. We'll just wrap it up here. This is a great place to stop because grace and peace are two extremely important concepts in the New Testament. That first word, grace, uh, is the Greek word charis. And charis, 
or grace, it means goodwill that is freely disseminated by God, especially to the benefit of the recipient, regardless of the benefit that is accrued to the disseminator. In other words, let me just sum that up. The definition of grace is goodwill freely given by God, especially to the benefit of those that receive it, irregardless of what God gets out of the the bargain. (laughs) And I love that because I got to tell you guys, God is not getting much out of this bargain. When it comes to Phil McKay, what I have to offer, what I get to put on the table, it's it's not pretty. It doesn't look good all the time. So I'm very thankful that God goes, you know what, regardless of how much benefit I'm getting out of this, Phil, I love you. I'm going to bestow goodwill upon you freely just because you're in Christ Jesus, because you believed the good news. Listen, we see two things about grace in uh, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First of all, we see its source. Notice the source. Paul says it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, just the deity of Jesus Christ is without question in the minds of the apostles and the writers of Scripture. Here we see Him equated with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, one God. Three different persons. But listen, that's where grace comes from. Okay, The life fulfilling, life-sustaining grace, the goodwill that comes from God, it only comes from one place, and that's God. Or, well, I don't want to confuse you, God the Father and Jesus Christ. They're both God. But listen, look at the effects of grace. Grace makes you and me acceptable to God. It makes you acceptable in the eyes of God. Now, I don't know how that uh, impacts you, but I know for me, I need to hear that. Wow, God's, because of God's grace, his goodwill to me through Jesus, I'm now acceptable. I'm accepted. Secondly, it makes me likable. <laughs> Did you know that God's grace means he likes you? It's not just that he loves you unconditionally. Grace is goodwill. It means he, it carries the connotation that God likes you. <laughs> you know, I joke around with my wife, you know, sometimes I'm like, She's like, you know, I'm like, do you love me? She's like, yeah, I love you. And I'm like, do you like me? (laughs) Because sometimes she doesn't like me, you know. She always loves me, but there are times when she doesn't like me. But you know what? God's grace, the amazing testimony of God's grace is that not only does he love us, always he likes us. Fathom that. Think about that. Blows my mind. He accepts us. He likes us. Thirdly, we have his favor. We have his favor. That word grace means that you have been given God's favor. Fourthly, it means goodwill. God's grace means goodwill. He he just, you know, goodwill. When when there are two goodwilled people uh, in a marriage, they're going to work things out. They're going to find a way to make it work. Guess what? That's how God is towards you and towards me and the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. He is going to make it work. He's going to find a way to fashion and form your life as he makes you into the image of Jesus. He has goodwill towards you. So listen, you might be thinking, well, why did he do this? Or why, did he, why has he done that? Listen, it's, it's all going to work out for your good because this is what grace is. God's grace makes all things work together for good in the lives of those that love him. But it also can mean gifts. 
It means that God gives gifts. His grace it comes with gifts. I love it. It also comes with joy. And it also comes with a connotation of thankfulness. So God's grace is all of these, all this generosity bestowed upon us and it produces thankfulness in our hearts. If, if we're truly receiving God's grace, it produces an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness in us. And then that second word there, <clears throat> excuse me, peace, which is irene in the Greek, and that just simply means to join, to set at one again. By implication, it means prosperity. So God's grace produces peace. His grace makes it possible to join us together with himself. He reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. We've been reconciled to God. And that means simply that you've been made friends with God again. You've been made friends with God once again because of his sacrifice. You see, the Bible tells us that the wicked cannot know peace. The wicked will never know peace until they repent and put their faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's because they're enemies of God. You are an enemy of God this morning if you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. But listen, through repentance, through confession, through faith in the good news about God's grace, about His mercy, God offers grace and peace. He offers friendship. The two always come together. And you'll notice in the New Testament that grace always comes before peace. You cannot know peace until you've experienced God's grace. How do you know that you've experienced God's grace? You guys have heard me say this many a time. You know that you've experienced God's grace when you live your life as if you have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. That's how you know you've experienced God's grace, when you have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose, because it's all on God's altar. Let's pray.